warm welcome to you all. Hope you'll thoroughly enjoy our program. the Real Britannia podcast, a very British podcast about very British movies with just a hint of professionalism. Good morning, Scott here. As usual, I'm joined by my co-host, Stephen. Good morning. Morning, Matt. And we've got a very special edition because it's not a hammer horror review this week, but we're joined by Mark. Hello. Hi, hi, hi. <laughs> yes, yes. You are, you are. I occasionally join you with these weird early 70s, or often early 70s, not always, mm. or, or uh, late 60s suggestions, like Please Sir and Melody and stuff like that. Yeah. But uh, this one was a um, sort of late-ish 80s one for a change. Set in London again, no? Yeah, so there, there is, well, I'm trying to work out if there is a theme. I don't think there is, but you always La- manage to find these little gems that have not completely been forgotten but have always been sort of pushed to the back of my brain that have always been there and you've just like rekindled them um, and this is no exception this time mm. we're doing Absolute Beginners from 1986 directed by Julian Temple kind of a mixed bag of reviews when you look at this movie both at the time and currently it's either loved or hated I think this film is fair to say it's a kind of Marmite film in that you're either you either like it or you don't own yeah. it in many ways there's no it was okay I yeah think there's, there's, you you have to like it despite its flaws <laughs> and if you hate it you can't argue against that I think this was his second movie oh no he did the Great Rock and Roll Swindle Great Rock yeah. Roll Swindle yeah Great Rock and Roll Swindle Another one of his that is goofy um, musical is Earth Girls Are Easy, and that's kind of fun. Uh, is and that's that Julian Temple. Oh my god! Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's Jeff Goldblum. Early days, Jeff Goldblum. Gina Davis. Gina Davis. Yeah, yeah. I kind of like that, and but that's got the same kind of issues, really. Right. As, as after the great rock and roll swindle, actually. True, true. Now we know you're a big fan of this because. Did you say you bought the vinyl or the special edition DVD or something? You, you got I, bought, of... I bought the vinyl when it first came out. Oh, I right. I the vinyl from 86. Uh, I posted a picture and it's got okay. an hour price sticker on of <laughs> 7.99. So there you go. It's a double Very, LP as well. It's a double LP. And interestingly, cannot find it on Amazon Prime Music uh, at all. The soundtrack. The track, on... the old yeah. track is on there. Like uh, David Bowie singing Absolute Beginners. But for example, you can't find Ray Davies singing Quiet Life anywhere on Prime. Things like that. It's just it's weird because this was. I mean, the, the album did better than the film. Everyone yeah. kind of liked the album. It was the film that. <laughs> <laughs> So we know you're a bit of a fan. Stephen, what's your history, mate, with this? Because it's about the same sort of... Uh, you'd have been early teens, wouldn't you, when this came out? Yeah, I didn't see it when it came out. Being a big, big Bowie fan, I mm. um, decided to, to watch it at a later stage, to, as trying to be more completist in his back catalogue of work. 
and I didn't remember too much about it. And actually, when I watched it on Friday evening, I started to think to myself that I'm not sure I watched it all the way through previously. So, so I, I would be reluctant to say I've got any kind of history with it, apart from obviously the soundtrack um, I'm more familiar with. Excellent. I've just checked on Spotify, talking of the soundtrack there. Um, somebody, Mark, has actually made a playlist. So it's not an official... Oh, okay. Yeah, so you can um, get some on Spotify there. Yeah, somebody has sort of taken the individual tracks that they've managed to find elsewhere on Spotify and put them all in there and included some other little bits as well. You know, there's some right. missing, it says here, but it's an almost complete version of... It's even got things like Sleepy Lagoon by The Platters, which you hear in the background. Very briefly, yes. Yeah, yeah, so somebody's managed to track it down and put... Oh, let's have a look. <laughs> but no, this guy who's compiled this playlist has even included the episode of Hancock's Half Hour that's playing in the background. Amazing, Amazing. In, in the in the air raid shelter, um, it's quite yeah. life on it. Can I have Ray? Ray yes, Ray it Ray? is. Yeah. Oh, okay. Because yeah. yeah, I, I really like that, and I'm so disappointed I can't get it on Pro. Yeah, if you um check it out on Spotify, somebody has compiled everything there, so it's it's a good indication of, of what okay. to expect music wise. Let's play the trailer. We'll be back after this. Absolute Beginners from the fabulous 50s, the musical for the 80s, the first teenage experience, the West End story. Do you hear what I hear? Do you see what I see? I want you to use your imagination. You wake up one morning and you ask yourself, Why am I so exciting? What makes me dramatic? You're trying to say something about yourself. Absolute Beginners, starring Eddie O'Connell and Patsy Kenseth. David Bowie, James Fox. Absolute Beginners from Pop's favorite director, Julian Temple. Thrilled to the music of David Bowie, Sade, Ray Davies, Style Council, Jerry Dammers. And a score by the legendary Gil Evans. From the book that brought the streets to life. Absolute Beginners is an absolute must. The music, the movement, the romance, the passion. Exploding onto your screens now. Absolute Beginners. Absolute Beginners, released in the UK in 1986, directed by Julian Temple, starring Eddie O'Connell, Patsy Kensett, appearances by David Bowie, James Fox, Ray Davis, Eve Ferret, amongst many, many others. We just mentioned off-air that poor old Stephen is going to have his work cut out with the Hall of Fame. I didn't realise the amount of people in this. The list of dancers stretches out to about 100, but don't think they're going to trouble Stephen too much, but we'll get to that when we get to the Hall of Fame. The briefest of synopsis here, Colin, played by Eddie O'Connell, an aspiring young British photographer and jazz aficionado, falls for the beautiful Crepe Suzette, played by Patsy Kensett, a model on the rise. When she leaves him to pursue her dreams of fame, Colin lands under the wing of Vendy's partners, David Bowie, a suave 
advertising executive and begins his own climb to all success. As Colin and Suzette get caught up in the promotion of youth culture, they brush up against the era's social issues, including racism. This is quite close to the book, despite all the musical numbers, isn't it, Mark? I think the yeah, whole... Yeah, apart from the ending, which I'll talk about when we get to the ending. The okay. ending is quite a bit different. But otherwise, you know what? They hit quite a lot of the same beats. There's the same characters. All those weird names, uh, mm-hmm. they're all in the book. They're all in the book pretty much. Some of the some of the plotting towards the end, there's some newish characters that I don't recall from the book. And I could be... I haven't read the book since the 80s, right? Mm-hmm. I read the book when I saw the film. I, I read the book before the film, and that's the last time I read the book. But I have to say, both are quite memorable. Both the book and the film are quite memorable. Considering I haven't really watched this in 30 years, I remember loads of it. Absolutely yeah. loads. Yeah, I mean, I thought I'd seen all of it. I don't think I had seen all of it since the 80s. I don't think I even watched all of it back then. I'm not too sure because there was some absolute, absolute, there was some um, scenes in there that I don't recall at all watching right, it right. last night. The book is part of a trilogy, although the trilogy isn't related, is it? None of the characters cross over. I think it's called the London trilogy, but apart from that, they're not, there's no crossovers now. Yeah. Okay. The synopsis I gave, you know, that that's the basis of, of what the story is all about. But it's there's more to it, isn't it, than this? It's it's this wonderful portrait of Soho where jazz is slowly being taken over by the teenagers by rock and roll. There's this lovely little crossover period about fifty eight and you see all of like old Compton Street and Greek Street and all those areas around Soho. Yeah. I actually think it's the other way around. I think rock and roll's old hat at this point uh, for these right. guys. And I think jazz is kind of pushing out rock and roll because he refers to the Teds as dressed up, you know, boys dressed as men is the kind of reference. <laughs> Whereas they're at, uh, the people he's hanging around are fully embracing teenager them. Uh, okay. It's like the Teds were not teenagers. They were like boys, you know, adolescents pretending to be men yeah these are much more so it's kind of an interesting because you always think jazz getting pushed out by rock and roll don't you but this kind Mm. of presented it slightly differently yeah because i always remember this is about the same era that say something like espresso bongo was filmed yeah and it's that same same area of london isn't it and and almost that beginning sequence this is wonderful long tracking shot going through all the streets and the alleyways yeah and it's almost a bit like west side story there's very loads of references to sort of west side story in this yeah um, particularly there's the west side scenes. story and i think there's some certain scenes which are reminiscent of the 40s and early 50s mgms uh, yeah. But certainly David Bowie's That's Motivation part is straight out of Gene Kelly's sort of playbook. Oh, it's his Crosby Barkley almost. Yeah, it's amazing, some of the references. It's an 80s musical. They were very few and far between, particularly in Britain, so this is a bit of a one-off. The background to the, to the history of the making of this it was make or break for Goldcrest, am I right in saying? Stephen might know more about this, because Stephen loves doing a bit of research. Goldcrest were in a bit of trouble with something like, was it Revolution, the Hugh Hudson movie? Yeah. Yeah, the, uh, yeah, Revolution and and this, and there was a third one, which yeah. I can't recall. Um, which all tanked the studio. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> it seems like there were some pretty poor choices made, and, and you know, mm. star names being relied upon to get the revenue in <laughs> without the, the necessarily the quality of the film being been there behind it. Unfortunately, yeah. so um, yes, it it was. One of the three straws on the camel's back. <laughs> it's a shame because they had a good run, didn't they? Um, yeah. I started off strong as a studio. Yeah, The Mission was the other one. 
the mission uh, that was it. it yeah. yeah because because they had such you know high profile actors in those two other movies it was al pacino i think in revolution wasn't yeah. it and de niro yeah. in the mission yeah that's obviously where a lot of the budget went to these two other movies do you remember the hype at the time guys surrounding this this was really hyped up wasn't it because mainly because of the bowie single hitting the top 10 that was everywhere and bowie was the face of this musical of this movie as far as i can remember because nobody really pushed Passy kenzie or eddie o'connell did they in this it was it was bowie's even though it's an extended cameo almost but the hype surrounding yeah. this was everywhere yeah, there, wasn't was, it? there was a lot of hype there was a lot of expectation which uh, when it was quite you know it didn't deliver as a narratively as a film and that kind of disappointed and uh, like i say the soundtrack came before it as well yeah. So and everyone kind of liked that. So everyone was expecting something really spectacular, but um, I think it, as a whole, it, it sort of disappointed. Okay. So Stephen, proper watch for you in a few years. I take it this this week, yeah. Yes. Going back um, to it after so many years, what, what's, what's your thoughts? Uh, well, it, when I watched it, it I did really um, it dawned on me why I hadn't gone back to it. To be perfectly <laughs> honest. <laughs> Um, yeah, so uh, it's um, come on, be honest, you're amongst friends, sir. Come it, on, yeah. <laughs> it, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not really, I, I don't know if I'm, it's just because I'm, I'm not really a musicals guy. I mean, unless it's got the Muppets in it, I'm not really, um, I, I don't usually, t- I find it a lot harder to get into. Uh, musicals and you know I can't deny there are some fantastic musicals out there you know singing in the rain etc but I don't think this was in the same league really as, as singing in the rain and um, it really feel like it's it playing the same game <laughs> never mind the same league um, to be perfectly honest so yeah I, I, I can more chime with the reviews um, which were less complimentary about it because of, okay. of no. so many many elements of it I'm, I'm struggling to try and think of anything that apart from the, the the good songs on the soundtrack i'm trying to think of anything that uh, is a redeeming feature for this in its entirety really to, to me this i think this is where you're probably going to go it works well as a series of individual pop videos like music videos. yeah yeah if, if this yes. was split, yes. split, if this was split up for mtv You've got 20 great little little three-minute numbers. For me, I think sometimes it appears a bit disjointed. Say, for example, after Patsy Kensit does her first big number, it then goes into Have You Ever Had It Blue by Style Council, playing over this sort of moody montage thing. And that kills yeah. the tone of the movie completely dead there because it's just like, okay, that works as an individual piece. That re- really goes well with Paul Weller's soundtrack there. But not at that point in the movie. Yeah, I absolutely agree. The, you both yeah. here. I totally see why you wouldn't like this or you just figured it is totally disjointed. It, the movie lo- lost it in the edit. The edit was just poor. Mm. Um, so the tonal shifts take you out of it again and again and again. Yeah. It's like, you know, why is this happening? And it goes from, and also it goes from really, really weirdly serious stuff to like abstract. You know, there's a race riot and they're fighting with knives and suddenly they go into almost like ballet. That's the West Side Story. You know, West Side Story kind of choreography in the middle of a knife fight. And it's like, and then they go back to the knife fight. It's like, (laughs) (laughs) um, yeah, I get you start with the dancing and then you get into the scene. You know, there's ways of doing this kind of thing. And even Um, the build up to that whole racial tension thing because this yeah, is yeah. Like set around the Notting Hill riots of 1958 which covered it was it Sapphire wasn't it Stephen I think was yeah, um, and, set at and, this time and certainly that that topic has been covered I feel better by uh, over not just Sapphire but um, there was Flame in the Streets yes which, 
which fantastically covers the, mills, the, the yeah. same um, area. Um, whereas this, it's it's difficult to feel as a proper threat and the seriousness of, of that. It's very admirable that they're trying to cover that topic in a musical, but it's difficult to take the threat seriously when you've got... <laughs> Ted Paul Tudor in, in a, a, a grubby, bad-fitting suit, dancing on some rubble, and that's mm. meant to be threatening. It really doesn't convey the seriousness of what you know those the people were, were yeah. facing. Mm. Uh, I, got, I, I got the feeling the book probably dealt with that side of things a lot better. It did. I would hope so. Book, yeah. the, whole, the whole bit, the racism being contrived for property development was not in the book. That's a yeah. whole thing that uh, I think probably didn't I mean the not the, only rights arose because of other reasons right uh, though there were landlords chucking people out that was part of it but it yeah. wasn't like oh let's build this nice place oh. and it was, it was just interesting I'm talking about Napoli I don't think there's such a place as Napoli or maybe there was very briefly but it's like Labrook Grove and somewhere between Notting Hill and Shepherd's Bush this <laughs> Uh, but that's okay that's okay and I don't know what the sort of uh, place was like uh, but I do remember even in the 70s as a boy there were still bomb sites from the war absolutely yeah there were bomb sites everywhere all over London for decades yeah so this is that was realistic Um, what I think one of the things I I, I really like this film I think is uh, and I like I said I haven't seen it in decades but I still Mm. remember is all the references to things in London you saw things in the background I remember seeing as a kid a bloke Mm -hmm. walking around with a clipboard talking about less lust less protein less meat <laughs> yeah. that's a real thing there was a bloke yeah. that did that for years and years <laughs> I remember seeing him as a kid and seeing him as a teenager wandering around London that yeah. man for example uh, for example you had the war veteran, didn't you? The Dunkirk veteran. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he appeared a couple of times in the scene. Round about that thing with the steady cam shot where they're going around and you've got like the prostitutes and the kids and the kid, the, the naughty school kid, naughty school that. kid, all that. You had outside Lionel Blair's office, you had a, a skiffle group and they were doing Rock Island Lion and you're thinking, is that supposed to be Lonnie Donegan? You know, it's, yeah. It's, it, there was lots of little references, like you say. And the recreation, I mean, most of the, the street scenes were stupid studio based you could see it was all inside the studio yeah apart from the shots of the thames there was a yeah. studio right and and they recreate like i say around sort of greek street and old compton street really well because they go into the two eyes coffee bar at one point right and, and just comrade is there <laughs> doing the coffee and the two eyes coffee bar is on old compton street and it's famous isn't it for like cliff richard was there and um and tony Hancock. Tommy Steele and all those guys, you know, they, that was where they performed in yeah. the Two Eyes. And believe it or not, I went into the Two Eyes about three weeks ago before I went on holiday. It's yeah. now a chip shop, right? Okay. But it's still, it, it doesn't look exactly the same, but you walk in and you think, oh my God, that's where the bar was. That's where the stage was there. And they've yeah. got lots and lots of pictures still on the wall. And it's an amazing place. It's a very expensive fish and chip shop, I must admit. But it's still there. And it's still like the history of the Two Eyes is still there. But you can still see they've sort of got the layout the map of Soho pretty much correct they've gone to the effort oh yeah of, of it not does look just like random Soho. streets yeah yeah and Soho hasn't changed that much either not frankly. really yeah pretty no. much not no no and it's only like stone throw away from where I work so okay. I see that side of it quite often as I walk through so the attention to detail was there but as I say I just got the impression this was a massive MTV type pop promos all strung together yeah. um, I enjoyed it 
I'm not saying it was it was a desperately bad film. I don't know if you guys know. You're both fans of New Doctor Who to a certain degree. You you love your Doctor Who. You know Nicholas Pegg who voices the Daleks. Yeah. Right. Uh, and Cybermen in the New Doctor. He's a massive Bowie fan, right? And he wrote a book. I think it was called The Complete David Bowie, and it's like an encyclopedia plus. It's this this turn to like reference for David Bowie fans. And in that, he described the movie. Really well. He was quite fair. You know, he, he points out the flaws and he points out the positive sides of it. And it's mainly centered around Bowie's appearance, obviously. But he summed it up brilliantly at the end of this assessment of the movie. And he says, do you know what? Oscars have been given to worse movies. And, yeah. and I, I think that sums it up really well. He's like, yeah. Yeah. It, it's not the perfect film. But then again, there's some right more crap out there. You know, there's yes. certainly worse movies. than. And as I say, I don't personally think it wasn't a bad film. I quite enjoyed it. I liked it more for seeing things like Ray Davis yeah. doing the song in the 80s. I liked it with the fact that people like Irene Handel and Eric Sykes cropped up throughout the movie. Even Mandy Rice Davis from the Perfumo Affair. Yeah, she so was his mum. mum. Yeah, yeah. I'd yeah. forgotten she was part of this movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, Did you, uh, as we're talking about that bit with Ray Davis and the, the, dance, of, the dance, uh, yeah, yeah, Bruno Tognoli. I spotted him. <laughs> I couldn't believe I said, that's Bruno Tognoli. And it, well, he must have been early 20s when he did this. It must have been, um, yeah. yeah and it, but it's still distinctive. It's still distinctive. It's it was kind definitely of funny. Him. Definitely him. I'll tell you what, let's take a break. Let's do the Hall of Fame. Poor old Stephen, I think, has had his work cut out, as I say. <laughs> Not only from the big names, but I think there's some people in here that, you know, that are going to surprise us. Let's say that. Steve, let's get the keys. Let's go into the Hall of Fame. Okay, Village Hall of Fame, in which people that have appeared more than three times on the Real Pretending Podcast get inducted. But it's the Village Hall of Fame because we're not worthy enough to have a Hall of Fame here. And our curator is our very own Stephen. And he has got the spreadsheet from hell laid out in front of him right now. <laughs> and for something that I didn't even... I bet Mark even didn't even consider the Hall of Fame when you chose this movie. It was the no, last not at all. Uh, yeah. I feel real bad now, actually. <laughs> Never mind. And Mark has this habit of doing this, unfortunately. <laughs> Just throwing something randomly at Stephen, and then Stephen curses him for weeks after because there's more people in this than you remember. No, I know, I know Mark uh, doesn't do it intentionally, <laughs> so uh, 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 there's no, ma- no uh, malice behind it, and there's no... Oh. Bad feeling towards him uh, in, in return um, he, he just tries to pick films he, he, he wants and that's mm-hmm. absolutely what he should be doing he, it's not it should never stop us reviewing a, a, a film just Cold because uh, no. there's, just because there's 130 people uh, in, <laughs> in the film <laughs> ooh Okay, start us uh, off. I can feel the pain, I can feel the pain. <laughs> can you, yeah, the venom actually there. Like, <laughs> I was putting it nicely. Yeah, he almost spat that out at you there. No, no. In, in, 30 in, people. No, <laughs> in, in, fairness going, in fairness, going through the cast list was probably more enjoyable than watching the film, so... Oh! Um, <laughs> go, let's, let's hear it. So, honourable mentions then. Uh, obviously, Davy Bowie, we've got to... Uh, we've mentioned him already, and Mandy mm. Rice Davis. Also, Stephen Burkhoff, 
um, was was in there. Ronald Fraser, who yes. uh, surprisingly hasn't been in anything else uh, that we've done, which really was an absolute shock to me. Mm. Um, I, I went through that twice, going, "She can't, can't be right." He's more a TV actor, isn't he? I guess is he? I'm not sure. Yeah, a bit more. Yeah, yeah. But there's a lot of '60s comedies he was involved. Not necessarily the Carry Ons, but that sort of era, wasn't he? He appeared in a fair few of those. Yeah, that's surprising. Okay. So uh, Sandy Shaw, just as a a brief forgot about that as Mm -hmm. well. Yeah, Uh, and and another um, singer, Shade. Yeah. I have to say, this reminded me how good Shade is. I've forgotten. Man, she was great in this. That is a really oh, good... And, and, and there was Smiley Culture as well, talking to singers. <laughs> was it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd forgotten how good she was Smiley Culture. Yeah, OK. <laughs> that was, and that was the, the last one of the honourable mentions. OK. So, yeah. As far as making their second appearances, uh, we've got uh, Robbie Coltrane, um, yes. who was previously in uh, Mona Lisa. Uh, we've got somebody called Jess Conrad, who was in uh, Reach for the, was in Reach for the Sky of all films previously? Yeah, uh, Jess so. Conrad has made a career in later life of just being Jess Conrad. If if you follow Twitter, he's he's everywhere because he's one of the last survivors of that Cliff Richard era. Yeah, he had a, I'm yeah, pretty quite a few sure hits. he was in the Hammer. I think. You know, I think he was think. in a few. Yeah, he, he did quite a, a, a sort of checkered acting career, but he's more known as being a '60s rock and roller, Stephen. You know, but then. He's like, you know, like a member of the Grand Order of the Water Rats. You know, he's he's one of these like people that name drops every opportunity. He'll always appear on like a cabaret bill with Cannon and Ball or something like, well, Cannon now or whatever. But, you know, he's always appear in some sort of like cabaret celebrating the 50s and the 60s. You know, I think he's doing a tour like Anita Harris at the moment with somebody else, you know. But Jess Comrade, yeah, so Reach for the Sky. And what was the other one? Well, this one, there's two. Oh, it's only two. Two, two, yeah. So, and I I think think Mark's right. He was in some horror. Um, Was it? It was in Conga. Conga. (laughs) Was it in Dr. Terror? Dr. Terror, I think, you think he might have been in, I'm just remembering off the top of my head. I only saw that, that the other might week, have, and I don't remember. Might have been. <laughs> it might, I, might be, I might be misremembering it, but I thought, uh, I think okay. that might have been what he was in. Julian Firth yep. was in Quadrophenia. James Fox was in performance. Mm-hmm. The, the lead in this uh, film, Eddie O'Connell, was in Sexy Beast. Yes. Which um, I'd forgotten, completely forgotten. I, 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 like, I, yeah. I as well. I, that was completely out. It was, I, I, uh, I thought Eddie movie. O'Connell's career died after this movie. I thought this was it. it, it, it you know, never went on to anything else. Well, and, yeah, never really got that big. No, there was a lot of no. TV stuff after this, and and Sexy Beast, as you say. Well, in in fairness, there's a lot. There are there's a significant number of people who um, were in this film and never were in anything else again. So, um, <laughs> and it didn't, I don't think it just killed the studio. I think it also <laughs> killed some people's careers, unfortunately. <laughs> and finally, for second appearances, there was JB Zoot Money. Who else was in? <laughs> Uh, Mona Lisa. Oh, okay. So yeah, I don't remember. In no, he was. No, no I don't remember. Um, no. There's only one person making their debut in the Hall of Fame uh, with three appearances, and that's Tina Simmons, who was previously in Hope and Glory and Sexy Beast. Right. Have you guys got access to IMDb? Yeah. Yes. Click on Tina Simmons and look at her CV. Is it just what you've just we- said? <laughs> we have got a potential Victor Harrington here. 
Oh, she, yeah, she's got like 200 and... Ah, she's been in Star Wars. She was in a couple of the Star Wars, three or four Bond movies, three or four carry-on films. She has been in absolutely everything. Look at that list. Tina Simmons there, don't we? We, We've got a dark horse. It's it's a bit later than Victor Harrington. Her career starts in sort of like the early 60s. But any sort of movie from the 60s, the 70s and the 80s, look at that list. That has got loads of TV as well. Yeah. Two hundred and eighteen credits overall. That's more than the Duchess. And the most recent one is No Time to Die. Yeah, yeah, she's in like all the recent Bond movies, even some of the Roger Moore's. I think there's some carry-ons. There's everything. Oh my goodness! (laughs) And and potentially, you know, is that that you know, as time progresses, where you know more of the films are are after uh, Mm -hmm. Victor Harrington stopped acting, there's somebody to to pick up the mantle. Um, and, And yeah. She's the Duchess. So you're absolutely mm. right. Yeah, when I when I opened up that and went 218. <laughs> okay, I'll scroll through. Right, um, but it was you know because yeah. the majority of what we have covered uh, as a podcast has been you know pre 90s. Um, there wasn't a no. massive load. I mean, there's stuff in there that will absolutely should pop up again, blow up and things like that. Should yeah. I mean, we're going to see more of her than Bruno Tollioni, that's for sure. Well, I would say so, yeah, and, 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 Eddie, and Eddie O'Connell as well. And um, Eddie O'Connell, the star of the movie, yes. So, yeah, I'll talk about him at a different point where it'll have to, you know, him, okay. but how, how convincing he was. Um, but as far as um, people making their fourth appearance, we've got five. We've got uh, Roy Beck, mm-hmm. who very much uh, background, uh, Bedazzled, Fish Called Wonder, and Heavens Above. Mm-hmm. Uh, Barry Holland, Chariots of Fire, Fish Called Wonder, Quadrophenia. Derek Lyons, Dance of a Stranger, Mona Lisa, Quadrophenia. Johnny Shannon, who mm-hmm. uh, we do recognise when we see. Performance, uh, Sweeney, Exclamation Mark. And uh, that will be the day. Yes. Uh, and finally, for the, uh, the fourth appearance, was Eric Sykes, obviously. Um, Heavens Above, The Plank, and Theatre of Blood. A very brief appearance by Eric Sykes. It was yeah. seconds, yeah. wasn't it? No words. It was just, yeah. Yeah, it was just it's a business in a, in a booth. In yeah. a booth, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Blink and you miss him. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And a bit more prominent, but still not, you know, still a, a background character. Um, we've only... Uh, a few bits of dialogue was uh, making their sixth appearance was uh, Irene Handel. Again, um, a, br- so a beautiful appearance. Yeah, Brief Encounter, Carry On Constable, Carry On Nurse, Heaven's Above and The Rebel. Yeah, must have been one of her last movies, this. Yes, very old, was, very yeah. old in this. Yeah, so, and that was, uh, that's it as far as Hall of Fame. Was that it? Yeah. Oh, I, th- I was yeah. expecting there may have been like a, a little background character that, you know, a, a Victor Harrington type that may have snuck in, but so six was the most. Yeah. Round. It's, uh, well, uh, let's be fair. This film, acting wasn't one of the qualities they were using when they were casting, right? It was, uh, apart from James Fox and a few of it, Julian Firth was all right. No one could really act that well in this film. No. Yeah, I'm not sure acting was even even managed to get into the top five of priorities. To be honest, in, no, in no, no, definitely not. Probably, I agree. I agree. Probably when um, what's uh, set design, probably getting supporting like stars Dancing. in supporting roles, uh, dance choreography, um, getting some some people who were who were poor singers trying to murder a, a plot of a book, uh, and um, 
Uh, and then probably number six on the list was oh let's let's see who can act. It As really it, was James Fox, wasn't it? That yeah, that, and that's about it. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think I think that musicals tend to not emphasise acting as much as they do uh, emphasise people being able to hold a tune and, and sing and, and do do that side of things. But unfortunately, not a lot of the people who were doing singing in this could actually sing. Um, <laughs> oh, um, no, non-singers could sing. It's a good act well, either. I'll yeah. tell you what I noticed. Edward Tudor couldn't even mime to the song. Yeah. Yeah. At it least he had a bit of charisma, out. though, right? He, he was so charisma. out. I need to mention two on that list, Stephen. Did you mention Sylvia Sims? Uh, she, I did, didn't mention her. No, she, uh, I'm not sure she's been in anything else that we've she's not been in anything mentioned. he's done. You've done Ice Cold in Alex. We've done Ice Cold in Alex on Stinking Pools, but not on, on Real Pals. Oh, okay. No. Okay, yeah. So she should have been an honourable mention because she's... Right. She, you know. Is that a one or That's the first appearance. Well, mm. wow. And the other one, what was E. Ferret famous for? Being I'm on a... blankety blank is all I can remember. <laughs> I uh, yeah, I, I, I remember it like with a big beehive haircut in something like Russ Abbott or something like that. But I, oh, can't I don't even remember on those. I remember her being a, a panelist on game shows. That, she was that's famous it. for being at. I'm She's just been like Amy McDonald or one of those types, right? Yeah. Not, what 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 is this person? She's all right. She's even, but she can't. She couldn't act, but she was okay. You know? I'm just trying to see why she was because I remember her in the eighties, but I can't think what for. Right, she was in Bottle Boys, which was the sitcom with Confessions guy, Robin Asquith. Yeah, Robin it? Asquith, yeah. the Milton one. Oh God, I remember that. Right, she was in No Place Like Home. William Gaunt. Don't remember that. Right. This is the Julian Temple David Bowie connection. She was the receptionist in the Jazzing for Blue Jean video. Oh, that's a good video. Yeah. Yeah, actually, that looks a lot like this. Film, yeah, there's, there's a lot of links, isn't it? Because this is how Bowie got involved and Sade and all that, because Temple had done pop videos for them previously, hadn't he? This is the whole... Yeah, we can't really fault the musical numbers, I don't think. No, no. And Stephen just hinted at uh, Eddie O'Connell's acting ability. I think the chemistry between him and Patsy Kensit really just do- doesn't exist. It's not nah, there. I- the other jarring thing is he keeps going about teenagers and he looks about 27. Yeah. And it's like, I, I tried to find his age when he made this film, couldn't find it. But I'm, it, it, him going on about, we asked teenagers and he thinks, nah, nah, mate, nah, nah. <laughs> I'm surprised that you're picking that up though, Matt, because it's, it's kind of a running theme for you, isn't it? And you're police, sir, and etc. Got people uh, who were, who were yeah. like 30 playing. Yeah, <laughs> but they don't, the difference is they don't go on about being teenagers. Uh, yeah, all the time. Yeah, all the, the time. <laughs> and and um, there was and there was some acting ability amongst those those people. Yes, uh, whereas yes, with, yeah. with him, yeah. I, I find it very difficult to believe, as you said, a lack of chemistry between the two leads, as it were, if that's what they were termed to be. I'm not really <laughs> sure how Patsy Kendrick had a strong enough presence in the film to be a lead. Yeah, but, I have to say, uh, I I thought she was all right as Krebs. Is it? Uh, she couldn't act, but I think she had a bit of charisma, and I think her number having all was actually pretty damn good. Is my opinion of that. That particular number I, I've, I've always enjoyed that one but it comes out of nowhere it just comes out of nowhere, it? Um, very little build up um, I'd say a lot of the dialogue you hear about when they talk about teenagers like, that comes straight from the book they actually did lift a lot from the book um, that I sort of thought was the case yeah yeah I, I, it was I, it was too good for the rest of the film <laughs> And I mean, yeah, but he didn't sell it though, did he? I mean, as you say, he he didn't look right, and he's. Nah. I, I I found it, you know, I found it difficult to believe that he had any kind of infatuation really with. 
Patsy Kins, its character, the script is that because it just they just didn't feel like there was any real emotion behind yeah. him at all. Do you guys mind if I talk about the book a little here? Yeah, just, yeah. There's some interesting points about it. Well, also, just before I go on to that, uh, the other thing that he said as a teenager, he had a massive sailor tattoo on his forearm, which looked really jarring to someone saying, I'm a teenager in the 50s. It just didn't look right. Anyway, um, yeah, the book's really, really interesting. Colin McInnes only wrote three books, I believe. And oh. he, he wrote them in his 40s, right? Right. This came out, like, the year after the Notting Hill riots, so it was written contemporarily, right? Mm-hmm. what's going on. Uh, but he, it's a really interesting book. It's written in a first-person sort of loose style. It's almost Clockwork Orange-like, almost, in the oh. slang and stuff, right? Right. And its attitudes are really... Uh, they kind of blew my mind when I read it in the 80s, because he was like... He talked about people's sexuality, like, Big Jill is a lesbian. It kind mm. of comes across... And Crepe Suzette has got a penchant for black men even right. though and he doesn't mind uh, and there's all there's quite a lot of fluid sexuality going on in the whole book and and all these uh, discussing attitudes and things like that and call me Cobber for example is a real character in the book I know it it felt like that was a character created to be Alan Freeman right? <laughs> <laughs> but that was a real character doing those things doing her nasty TV pieces uh, yeah. and stuff like that so uh, it's a really interesting book and I encourage everyone to read it he was bisexual, I think. That's why he covered over the um, openly sexual. That's why he covered over. I think. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, with, but it's um, really refreshing. Yeah. yeah, it was refreshing to read that. It must have been a bit controversial when it came out. I imagine, or maybe it was so little, no one cared. Yeah, it was. It's Paul Weller's favourite book. Um, yeah, I, that's I why the jam did a. The jam did a song called Absolute Beginners. Beginners. Yeah. They did. Yeah. Funny yeah. enough, when the Soul Council first came out, almost all their singles and uh, LPs had a, a piece written by someone called the Cappuccino Kid, right? And mm. if you read those, the style of those is really similar to the book. Oh, okay. Um, so there is that. And one one thing that, like. Like you said, it kind of sticks to the book, apart from the end. The end is, again, was kind of mind-blowing and quite enlightening for me as a sort of young man when I read it. I think I read it when I was like 19, 18, 19. Mm. Um, in the end, he just, because of the race rights, he just says, I'm sick of this. I can't go somewhere that there's racists. I've got to look for a new life. And he he, fight, he, re, he figures out Brazil is a place with the least <laughs> racism for some reason. Okay. He goes and buys a ticket to fly to Brazil. Is at London Airport and there's... The rain, the heavens open, you know, after the heat wave. Yeah. And it's just torrential rain. And then he sees young African guy getting off the plane with a massive grin on his face, like, I'm in London. Oh. I've escaped. <laughs> and he just goes up to him and hugs him and laughs. <laughs> and they both just start laughing. And that's how the book ends. And it's like, oh man, wow. I see. It doesn't matter where you go, you just got to be happy where you are. Where you, know, you are. Oh. Or go other places, but you know, you're never going to escape this crap. Uh, you've just got to live with it, but enjoy it. Anyway, uh, it was a great book. Great book. Yeah, it, so. it did make, it did make a, a few more than, um, than the London trilogy. Oh, did he? Sorry. No, it's yeah. not, they, they didn't reach the same prominence uh, at all, but uh, a few of those did get almost like a, a cult following as well, and, and certainly had the same with Absolute Beginners, you know, inspiring the, the jam song before the film was, uh, a number of years yeah. before the, the the film was made. There's, I remember reading that two of Billy Bragg's albums were were named after um, novels by by McInnes, and I'm trying to remember what what they were. One of them was England Half English, and I think the the other one was 
What's the what's the third? It's the love and justice. Yeah, it's Billy Gregg. Yeah. So, but they certainly didn't reach the prominence that you, as Matt said about the the London trilogy, as it were. Um, really, the what he's known for and what really were the staples for people if they're going to go visit his work. And he was later in life, like you say. It's, it, how much of that was a controversial element that Matt said about? Um, certainly, I think there's stuff there potentially in the source material that that was lost that maybe would have made this better. Yeah, it, it, yeah. The, the movie rather than the novel was adapted into a stage production. I'm assuming a musical stage production. Right. So we're, we're talking 2007. I'm getting that. the feeling. Yeah, I'm getting the feeling it would have worked better as a stage musical than a movie musical, looking at what I saw last night. Yeah, I think so. Uh, with stagecraft, you accept more things like in a knife yeah. fight, people starting yeah. to dance. You totally accept that on the stage. Yeah. Uh, and it can be a little weird in film. Uh, though, you know, they did it in West Side Story because they were very careful to separate violent drama with mm-hmm. abstract dancing. Yeah, you know, they were distinct things rather than being mixed and things like that. Yeah. Right? One thing I will say is, it's kind of a blues my mind that Matt, I think he was 44 when he wrote this, it feels like he's kind of in the mind of a teenager, which reminds me of a couple of books. One I've already mentioned, that The Clockwork Orange, because that feels like he's inhabiting a violent teenage mind, the writer. Yeah. The other one is um, Alfie by Bill Norton. He wrote that in his 40s. You know, and he was like a pretty overweight, out of shape guy, but he kind of spoke with the authority of someone who knew what being a young guy that can attract women, uh, how he treated them in a kind of authentic way. It's kind of interesting that this era had these writers that were doing this. Do this. Yeah, that's uh, yeah because Alfie, I don't know, was was written early sixties, wasn't it? Because yeah. it, even though it's filmed in sixty six, it was written a few years before, not many. But yeah. I didn't realise that McNaughton was older. I just imagined. I think he is. Yeah, I think he was when he wrote it. He was quite old, I believe. I could be wrong, but I think that was the case. Um, anyway, they they kind of are a similar ground. You know, those three books are similar in many ways. Oh, interesting. Okay, we'll have to go back to it because we're getting to Alfie soon when we do the kitchen sink stuff. So yeah. We can, we can look at sort of the comparisons there. On the whole, guys, does this film work? I want to. I want to talk to Stephen about this because I know Stephen has got. I'm not going to say he's got issues with it. But I just. Don't, I feel that the movie didn't quite work for you, mate. <laughs> no, it didn't. It's got some highlights in the soundtrack which are, are, are fantastic, and one or two bits that are so bad they're in, enjoyably bad, laughable. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but ultimately speaking, and now, I mean, it, it would, might have helped if there had been some of the elements of the book still, still there. It might have helped if they had a, a, a lead that was actually believable, because the whole plot about selling out and the, then the, the teenage rebellion and, and anti-establishment and all that, none of it was convincing. Coming, it just didn't sell any of that to me. And mm. um, it didn't even really sell that he had any any passion with when confronted with all the racism. It, it was, you know, uh, even in a fight sequence, he didn't seem like he really cared. And you know, yes, there was some really good sets as far as the you know when they're they're doing the songs particularly you know that typewriter with david bowie's dancing on and such like yeah. uh, you know admirable trying to include stuff to do with uh, the racial tension but it, it didn't really properly fit with the rest of what was going on 
I think initially when you start watching it, you're thinking the whole thing's about this torn love of Crips who's at, you know, leaving him to go into a, a marriage of convenience and selling out in that way and etc. And, and then it just didn't seem like that was any longer important um, to anybody, including the lead that was meant to care about it more than anybody. So it fell apart in, in any number of ways for me, unfortunately. The plot didn't have any proper rhythm to it. The acting by and large appalling um <laughs> the singing for the most part terrible and yes there was some some well choreographed dancing in it apart from that it was just trying to spot spot the faces of, of somebody going oh look, there's a yeah. there oh there's robbie culture and and doing that kind of thing that was the only thing that really kept any interest in it at all for, for me it was a struggle to be honest i was looking at the time to see how long it was left at a number of points uh, sadly You've hit the nail on the head there. I mean, no, because for me, as I said earlier, it works well as 20 separate MTV music videos. But even then, if you were to watch that David Bowie typewriter thing, like the whole sequence in isolation, visually, brilliant. It looks great. You know, they've gone to the effort of making this wonderful sort of like Busby Barkley type giant typewriter set. But the song is instantly forgettable. It's, yeah, it's not... the worst song on the soundtrack. Yeah. That's the trouble with it. Yeah. It's not Bowie's best by a long, long shot. Yeah, whereas the title track's great. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes. So that was disappointing in a way. If you're watching this as a Bowie fan, you are going to walk away very, very disappointed. The Ray Davis number. Now, the set for that, obviously the big cutaway house. Temple used that as a selling point for the movie. He filmed that pretty much early on and sort of used that for the backers financially. Say, look, this is what you're going to get. And they loved it. They loved that whole sequence of all the different rooms and all the stuff going on because it does look quite spectacular. But even and then Ray Davis has had far better numbers than that throughout his career. Ray Davis is, <laughs> you know, which is unfortunate because it's great to see people like Ray Davis in this, and and even in the background, Jess Conrad, all these famous singers from from the fifties and the sixties. That you know, that's Sandy Shaw. You know, I enjoyed it. Not as a whole. I think this is what Steve was sort of saying as well. There was bits in there. I was like, okay, that's interesting. That looks okay. But the heart of the movie is just lacking a lot. The essentials are not there, like the chemistry between the two leads, the acting ability of the people that should be acting well are not. If this was a more famous director, I would say this was like a massive passion project that went disastrously wrong. But it's Julian Temple who was hired specifically to do it. And we know he can direct. You know, so Great Rock and Roll Swindle's very patchy, I know that. But at the same time, he's done some great music videos. And what he's recreated here is one massive music video mashup that doesn't work. Disappointed. That's the only way I could, I was disappointed. <laughs> Fair enough. You were you were angry. You were disappointed. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm, think, not, I'm think, not angry at Julian Temple. I'm and just I think upset. The, <laughs> I think the, I think the film certainly from reading about the source material and then Mark actually embellishing upon that sounds mm-hmm. like if this was taken by somebody else who decided to, to turn it into a, a, a straight film rather than mm. it being a, a, a musical, did something that actually told the story closer to the actual book. Maybe if somebody like, I don't know, Shea Meadows or something like that got yeah. hold of it and did it and did a, a, a proper version of it closer to the book and I think it could potentially be a, a film that I would be really keen on. But, hmm. I mean, obviously I'm not, I'm, I, mean, I said at the beginning, I'm not somebody who's predisposed very well towards musicals anyway. I do find stopping and starting with 
musical numbers does take me out of, of, of a plot and this I suppose not really having a, a strong plot didn't help that to be perfectly honest so I recognise I've got a certain amount of bias going in which Mark didn't have and obviously has got better history with this film oh I'm biased in a different way though right that's that's mm. different yeah so uh, after watching it again for a few years, after a few years, Mark, you still love this movie, obviously. Oh, yeah, I still have yeah. a... Tr- it is a troubling movie, because I mm. often think, is it good? Is it? I'm not really <laughs> no. sure. But I no. enjoy it. <laughs> it's, it, not. it's not. It's not. No, I'll, tell you, I'll, t- I'll answer that question. It's not. <laughs> Is right. Joe Bob Briggs says the worst thing a movie can have is to be boring, and I don't find this boring. That's all. fair enough. Yeah, um, um, it's a pity it's sunk Goldcrest because they had a, some real great big yes. hits. It is pity that this, among others, I mean, you know, Chariots of Fire, Hope of Glory. That's an interesting. Yeah, we've yeah. covered both of those. Yeah. Local Hero. I watched not long ago. Uh, Gandhi. Oh, Whatever happened to Gandhi? You made that this one great <laughs> film. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I had to fit that. In. Um, <laughs> But yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think what you just said about Shane Meadows is absolutely a good spot because, in fact, I thought of Shane Meadows because there is a line in this film. This is England, right? That is a line. Yes. Oh, yes. Right. I noticed that. Yeah. Put this yes. in his "This is England" chronology as fifty-eight. It would be amazing, and there it would go. work. It would work. It would work if you, if he did it as a serious drama. Yeah, I I still like this film quite a lot. Uh, I think there's a a few musical high points. I don't think you necessarily agree with all of them, but I really like the opening sequence. I really like Patsy Kensit doing Have It Happen It All. I know her voice could be annoying, but I actually, I think this was the very best thing she's ever done and will ever do. <laughs> this particular song. Uh, and I think that whole scene was pretty cool, the way it was yeah. lit. I really like Ray Davis. I do like Ray Davis' Quiet Life. I think it's a good song. I like it. I know mm. he's done better, but, mm. um, uh, you know, that's the Kings. We're talking about the Kings' greatest hits. As that's true. Yeah. Uh, and I really I also like the Sade part. That was the high point, point for me. Yeah, yeah. That was... That yeah. was really cool of him getting kind of stoned and the smoking mm. cigarette. We've seen that in other films, haven't we? The close up of the the um, end of a cigarette sort yeah. of glowing from inhalation. We've seen that in lots of other films. That was really cool. But yeah, it's a mess. It's a <laughs> great big old mess. Hardly anyone can act. James Fox, I'll give it to. But the rest of them, they either couldn't act or the direction didn't allow them. I think this film lost it in many ways. Definitely in the edit because it's tonally just weird. All uh, constant. Um, yeah. I don't mean dancing to fighting. I mean, literally, you're on one scene and it doesn't resolve properly. And then we go to a different scene with a completely different tone and outlook. Um, That kind of thing all the way through. Uh, It looks also, it looks gorgeous. I watched it on a 75-inch telly and 4K. It looks magnificent. I mean, it wasn't quite as good as these in terms of look, but the only thing I've seen... Or better than this are some of the MGM Gene Kelly musicals, like Singing in the Rain. They really pop at 4K those films. Uh, Mm. But this was close. I and I will watch it again. But it is a mess, and I don't. I'm not going to argue with anyone coming out of this and thinking that was crap. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? I totally get it, but I enjoyed it. And I also a lot of nostalgia in there because a lot of the stuff going in the background is London stuff that I remember actually happening and seeing when I was a kid. There's all those weird characters walking around. I remember all those. That was also 
also a lot of nostalgia for the 80s as well because i just remember when this came out and the hype surrounding it and you know obviously bowie and episode beginners was massive and the other the other weird thing right was in that period in the 80s the dress people were dressing like they did in the late 50s if you watch a film like look back in anger or one of those how they're dressed in the mid 80s people were dressed like that (laughs) yeah so there was that synergy as well. There we go. So is it fair to say it's a glorious, good-looking mess? Yeah, yeah. It's a proper. <laughs> it's a. It's a right. Um. What the? It, it's a mess. Yeah. Yeah. Mess is the right word. But it's 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 good to look at. A glorious <laughs> disaster. Let's do that. <laughs> Let's leave it there for absolute beginners. We had a little chat before we came on air. Mark mentioned randomly a movie a couple of weeks ago, which we've just investigated. I think we're going to do this as our next non-hammer review. So let's take a break and we'll reveal what it is after this. Okay, chaps, that was absolute beginners. Now, we've sort of come with a joint decision into what we're watching that's going to be our next non-Hammer review. And it's a London gangster movie that I'm not aware of. And you guys know my love for London gangster movies, particularly the 70s. It's 1972, directed by Douglas Hickox and starring, this is a weird cast list, Oliver Reed and Jill St. John with Ian McShane. Frank Finley, Edward Woodward, Freddie Jones, Tony Beckley's in there, June Brown, Doc Cotton is in this. It's a movie called Sitting Target, and I'll read out the synopsis. The synopsis is, Imprisoned Harry Lomart is a vicious brute of a man, and yet he's prepared to do his long jail term, as he's confident that on his release his beautiful wife Pat will be waiting for him, but a visit from Pat brings him his worst nightmare. Now, Mark, you've seen this a while ago, and you said it's bonkers. It's super violent. Okay. <laughs> it's how I remember it. I'm hoping I don't. I'm hoping I'm not misremembering it. But I remember watching it, thinking, "Oh my god!" <laughs> this, uh, read as full animal. He's a, about as he's more animal than when he was a werewolf. Honestly. Oh wow. Okay. <laughs> he's an absolute beast of a man. Oh, we do like a bit of Ollie Reed, don't we? So we'll give that a go, but that's going to be later in the year. That's it for this episode of Real Britannia. Thank you, Mark, for being with us for a non-hammer review. It's always a, an eye-opener, a bit of an interesting choice every time we do something like this. So thank you for Absolute Beginners, despite the fact that Stephen really did. <laughs> I bet he'll remember it. He'll never forget. He will never forget the hours he slaved over the Hall of Fame spreadsheet just for you. Uh, it's... Stephen, apologies for absolute beginners, but thank you for being here. <laughs> well, 
There was lots of absolute somethings uh, in, <laughs> in regards to this. And, uh, do you know what? You can't like every movie review. You know, it's not a case of, you know, we're picking movies we like. But the, it, it, I like it sometimes when we go into a review and we've got something not negative to say, but when we come out a little bit disappointed and think, oh, you know, that could have been better. That's That was a missed opportunity, which I think this really was, this movie. It was a missed opportunity. I mm. think before where both of us came out, you know, came out of the film going, and that was disappointed and yeah. at least it wasn't that case this time around at least not everybody was disappointed I've I, I found yeah. some points in there that I liked yeah. I didn't go away completely distressed yeah. about the whole no, thing No Man for All Seasons was it or, um, that that was the was, one yeah. what, was, what was that what was the period drama that we did that we both um, Howard's End was it Howard's End because we love Remains of the Day yeah. Howard's End proved to be really disappointing didn't it yeah, yeah. anyway right. that, <laughs> that's it for the Real Britannia I've been Scott he's been Mark he's been Stephen thank you guys I'll see you all next time bye take care the end boys we've done our duty we can go now absolute shah a positive shah come on good luck thank you Hand up, sir. I'm sick of pain. Stop engines. Stop engines. <laughs>